thing about Antarctica is I learned is that it's kind of when things go wrong that it goes wrong super quickly and if you're outside in minus 30 you're not going to last long. Like I got, I, I had one experience where I got lost in a whiteout and for the first time in my life I thought this is how I go. Even now I still try to struggle to work out what I would do um, because as soon as you stop moving you freeze but if you keep moving you, may, you might be walking in the wrong direction. And so in that whiteout in this blizzard in, I mean the wind was the wind was about 100 kilometers. And uh, I was with one other person, another guy. We both had to like crouch down and, and each had to like almost hold the radio so it didn't get blown away. Like that's how, you can't, you're not talking to each other, you're screaming. We had a radio and, and we, had a, we had a friend made back in the tent and our plan was to, look, if we get in trouble, we'll radio you. And so he said afterwards, he said, all I heard was That, that blizzard and that wind and that white hot takes away all your senses and you, you can't do anything really. The wind dropped for like 10 seconds and we saw the top of one of our tents. And I think the scary thing for me was that I was about to go off in the other direction. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Grant Clark describing a harrowing experience in Antarctica. Grant went on two trips to the southern continent over the past summer, the second of which was an expedition that went to search for the Endurance, Shackleton's famous ship that was crushed by ice and sank more than 100 years ago. On today's episode, we sit down with Grant on his journey into adventure and how he came to join the search for Shackleton's ship. You're listening to Keeping It Wild, and I'm your host, Blake Dyson. Who's Grant Clark? Where are you from? Where did adventure in your world start? How did you get there? I'm Cape Town born and bred. Um, did a lot of team sports, and but then picked up a few injuries. And then I think to answer your question about adventure... And I can, I can go into this in detail, but like for, for a long, long time, I had this dream of cycling down Africa. Um, and I tried to do it when I turned 30. Um, and actually I went, I remember quite clearly, I, was, I went to a talk about um, someone had cycled through South America, I think. And he actually, I went to talk to him after the talk and he actually scared me off and he's, and I said, no, I want to cycle down Africa. And he said, well, do you have any cycling experience? And I was like, no, not really. And he said, well, I don't know. Then he said, like, there's, there's some big distances between towns and kind of um, got to know what you're doing. And yeah, and I, I remember just, I remember getting very scared. <laughs> I was like, okay, maybe I'm not ready for this. And I, I'm a little bit, yeah, I'm still a bit annoyed with him, actually. Like, you should, I would never 
now knowing what I know and everything, I wouldn't, that wasn't the response that I would give. Um, so I, yeah, adventure then really kicked off as I was approaching my, my, uh, 40 and I found I had a window of time and actually I'd, I'd entered the Cape Epic, uh, mountain bike race, uh, which was, I'd been wanting to do for years and years and I'd just never been able to afford it. And eventually I entered it and, um, and then realized that I was actually going to be in London and, and I was going to have to train through a London winter, a European winter to, to be ready for the Epic. And I just thought that's, that's never going to happen. Um, so I thought, well, why don't I cycle home and that will, that will be the training. Um, so that was, and then I was, then I sort of, I was like, this is my chance to do Cairo to Cape Town on the bike and I'm going to do it. <laughs> and, and I need to be back by the Epic for the, for the start of that. That was, so that was my sort of deadline and there's a whole yeah i mean the whole africa story and everything that came after that as the africa thing made me realize that if i wanted to do adventure i could do it if i wanted to do big things i could do big things and you just had to make them happen so like leading up to the trip i had a, a few panic attacks like genuine panic attacks where i just thought what am I doing um oh, and the other thing that that was unexpected I think for me was every time I told someone about the trip they would tell me why they were too scared to do it <laughs> and I realized that after a while I was taking on everyone's fears in addition to my own and I, and that just you know, it would me wore me down and and almost you know things like being too selfish, what about your family? What is, you know, how can you do this to your mom? Like, what happens if you don't come back? And, and it got, yeah, and, I, and then I got quite frustrated at one point. Um, so it, it was about trying to ignore and compartmentalize that stuff and go, okay, well, <laughs> yeah, it's a big continent and lots of stuff can happen, but that could happen anywhere. And, Let's have a go. And have a go, he did. Grant cycled from Cairo to Cape Town in a blistering four months in time to compete at the Cape Epic. Successfully completing this trip would redefine Grant's perception of what was possible and add fuel to the flame of his adventurous spirit. Next up, Antarctica. I've realized I've been looking for adventure for so long in my life. And so 25 years ago, I was at a girlfriend's house and I think we were on holiday and I picked up one of the books in her bookshelf. And it was, it happened to be the story of Shackleton and the survival story. Um, and I just, I read the book and I just, yeah, it just blew my mind. I was like, first of all, there's this place called Antarctica. <laughs> it's really cold. Like the least amount of people in human history have been there. Um, and then here was this guy who set sail to go and try and get to the South Pole. We actually tried to cross Antarctica and ultimately never made it, but it became one of the greatest survival stories of all time. And that for me, so ever since then, I just thought, what is this place? Like, it's so extreme. You know, like the lowest recorded temperature, I think is minus 
82. And I was like, what is a, what's, an, what's that, what does that feel like? What is an Antarctic blizzard like? What does it mean to be in one of the, the most remote places in, on, on this planet? Yeah, so, and, and that always stuck with me, um, the Antarctica thing. And then after the Africa trip, I, I got a, I was like, I got a bit cocky and I was like, well, done Africa now. Well, maybe I should just keep going south. And so I looked into, well, I tried to set up an expedition to cycle to the South Pole, which had been done twice. And I never got off the ground. And, and my sort of attitude was, well, if I don't do it, at least I'm gonna meet some interesting people and contacts along the way. As it happened, just bef- yeah, just around lockdown, I met, a, well, I met a friend of mine and he happened to work for a company that flew, flew and guests into Antarctica. So basically a high-end travel company um, offering a very unique product, which was, we, we will set up a camp in Antarctica for you, we'll fly you in. Um, you have this experience at the Penguins, um, uh, we'll fly you to the South Pole, um, and then you fly home. And they, what they needed was people to look after the camps on the ice. Uh, and it's essentially manual labor. <laughs> it's like just setting up tents and, and looking after the running of a camp. Um, it's super hard work, but I just, this is my way into Antarctica. And then through that, I heard about this expedition to go and look for Shackleton's ship. <laughs> and they already had a team. And I just, so I found the guy that was organizing the team and I just said, look, I will do whatever it takes. If, if someone drops out, if they expand the team, please, please, please just put my name on, on that list. Um, and he came to me about three weeks later in Antarctica while I was there and he said, do you still want in? And I was like, yeah, I went in. <laughs> and he said, cool, we, we, um, we set sail on the 4th of Feb. And with that, Grant was once again off to Antarctica, but this time in search of Shackleton's endurance, which met her demise in the Antarctic packed ice on the 21st of November 1915, and led to one of the greatest tales of survival and exploration of all time. So back in 1914, it was this golden age of polar exploration and no one had got to the South Pole yet. It was the last remaining outpost. And Shackleton tried, and he got the furthest south. And he could have made the pole, but he realized if he, had, if he, if he went to the pole, he wasn't, he, he wasn't going to make it back. And so he decided to turn around short. And it was quite a thing. He came home, and people, they were quite upset that he, didn't make, he hadn't made it to the pole. And he was like, well, <laughs> but I, like, I made the best decision. I saved my men. They reached their furthest south, 82 degrees, 16 minutes. A new, if unspectacular, record. They were less than halfway to the pole and had not left the Ross ice shelf after two months of hauling when they turned for home. And a year later, uh, Robert Scott and Roald Amundsen, this Norwegian, ended up in one of the most famous races. And they arrived in Antarctica at the same time and they were both going to try and get to the pole first and claim it for Norway or Britain. 
And uh, Amundsen being Norwegian and having been so much better prepared for snow and ice and, and, and knowing how to ski and knowing just so much more about the conditions, um, made it to the pole and back and, and won the race. And, and Scott uh, was a few, few days behind him. Um, but on the way home, Scott died. He, he, was, he, he was 12 kilometers from a food cache and they got caught in a storm and him and his three, three companions and they ended up freezing to death. And he wrote, he left this beautiful diary entry which, which everyone loves and it's, it's so interesting because you, you, can, you now you either fall into the Robert Scott camp of this, like he, he, he went for it and he failed but he, at least he went for it and died heroically or you are a Shackleton fan where you, like Shackleton did everything he could to save his men. It's like ultimately didn't, it wasn't about the, 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 yeah, what he was trying to do. But if we were to tell the story of Shackleton, we should mention that he was not everyone's cup of tea. In fact, one of his biggest critics was none other than Robert Scott, who had employed Shackleton onto his team in their first failed attempt at the South Pole. He was a bit of a chancer, he was a womanizer, he liked, he liked to drink, and he certainly was a man for the era. He was a, a swashbuckling sort of character, but a man with flaws. Translated into the world of business, his his gift for improvisation became sailing close to the wind. It became a wish to get rich, get rich quick. Um, people didn't come away from meeting Shackleton thinking, um, I have met a great soul. They thought kind of sort of big man, big mouth. But what happened was Shackleton was devastated because now the South Pole had been taken away from him. And so he was, so he said, okay, fine. There's one more thing to do and that's, I'm going to become the first person to cross the entire continent of Antarctica. So I'm going to, I'm going to sail there, I'm going to trek to the South Pole, and I'm going to keep going. That's never been done. And I'm, get, I'm going to get to the other side. What actually happened is he never made it to Antarctica. The ship, his ship, the Endurance, got stuck in the ice and it froze. And so he ended up... Uh, drifting with this ice flow through winter, through the darkness, hoping that the next summer the, the ice would, um, would soften and break apart. But what happened was, it was like, almost like a freak of nature, but three ice flows came together and what they did was over the course of about eight to 12 months, ended up crushing the endurance. And they, they were just moving inwards the whole time and breaking the ship. And eventually Shackleton said, okay, everyone off, take what you can and they camped on the ice. And about a month later, the ship went down. Worsley writes, my ship was being strangled and I could do nothing to save her. Uh, and 24 hours later, the captain of the Endurance, Worsley, took coordinates of where he thought the ship had gone down. 
And the reason why I did it 24 hours later was that they had to take it using the sun, and the sun had only come out 24 hours after the ship had sunk. But in those 24 hours, they had now drifted, and no one knew up until now how far they had drifted, what the current was like. So Shackleton then spent the next year trying to save his men, and they eventually, they had three lifeboats which they took off the ship. They trekked them over the ice, which is the most <laughs> insane thing you could think of, pushing wooden boats across the ice. Shackleton's plan requires the lifeboats to be manhauled to open water. But despite the ruthless culling of their possessions, each vessel weighs more than a ton. Um, they, found, they managed to row, they managed to find open water and row to an island called Elephant Island. And it turned out to be the most inhospitable place on earth. So Shackleton, after about a week there, he just realized, he's like, if we stay here, we die. So he took, um, he took four men and he said, okay, I'm taking the last lifeboat and we are going to sail to South Georgia Island, which is 800 nautical miles away. And it's, there's a whaling station there. Um, and we can raise the alarm and come back. No one, like to this day, no one knows how he made it. It's the most, they like considered one of the most impossible small boat journeys of all time. He then landed on South Georgia and realized that they were, because of the storm, had landed on the wrong side of South Georgia Island. <laughs> and the whaling station was in the other side and in between, in between them was the biggest mountain range of the island and no one had ever crossed it. And so <laughs> he had to cross it. Nine days after arriving in South Georgia, the three men are ready, emaciated, Starving and poorly equipped for an alpine expedition, they depart in the middle of the night. And they roped themselves up, and these are sailors. They had no idea about the mountains. They were, um, and he trekked over the mountains, um, like died, nearly died a few times. At one point, they were so exhausted, his two companions fell asleep, and he knew that if he fell asleep, they'd all die. So he waited five minutes and then woke them up and said, you've been asleep for an hour. Um, and then they got up and, and carried on. And he made it back to the whaling station. Um, the whaling station manager who had dined with him two years earlier did not recognize him and couldn't believe they had come over the mountain. And it then took Shackleton another four months to persuade a country to lend him a ship to go back to fetch his men. And eventually, I think it was a, a Chile gave him a ship and said, and he tried a few times, um, couldn't get through the ice. And eventually he got hold of the ship and he, and he made it back to Elephant Island to pick up the remaining 23 men or 23 crew. And the remarkable thing about this whole story was covers two years in Antarctica is that no one died and he saved all his men and that's why the story then became so famous and also because no one knew where the ship was so the endurance had sunk but no one quite knew where and it was it, it is pretty much the hardest spot on earth to get to and the hardest place to live and the absolute hardest place to live like it's just, you don't know, I do, so Shackleton said, 
for about eight months at one point they were never dry like it's just continually cold and damp for eight months they were never warm i mean i don't i just don't know how you do that no like we got way too many luxuries in life no totally and absolutely and you think they so they took the small boat journey four of them i think or five of them wearing burberry jerseys like that's all they had that was the best material best thing that they could use and i don't and this is like minus 10 in the boat freezing water like i was like i don't know i don't understand <laughs> it's yeah. crazy so it's just the craziest story and that's why the, the they called it the most unreachable shipwreck and you know so it was and that was why this expedition was so important so so actually what i want to know is like in my mind i'm picturing you on this luxury icebreaker essentially um in comparison to shackleton's boat um and i, I don't know how big the and your boat was but shackleton's was what like 40 meters with 20 odd crew no, totally. I, I, like, I thought about it like that so often. And Shackleton's ship was wooden. Um, and, you, and you're right, 40, it was about 40 meters. The, the endurance is Shackleton's ship uh, had a name before that. Had yes, it, so, so. It, was, it was originally called Polaris. Yeah, and it was um, and built in Norway. And the owner, um, yeah, the owner actually came into some financial difficulty and Shackleton, he was trying to organize this expedition swooped in and said, look, I'll buy your ship off you for a good price. And then he did strip it down and he made it into more of an expedition ship. Yeah, and then, you, and then you got the Agalis, which is, I mean, essentially it's a research and supply ship. So the, it's kitted out. I mean, it's got a gym. <laughs> it's got, um, I mean, it's got a sauna. It's like amazing. I mean, that's just amazing. Um, but yeah, it's got a heli deck, could take two helicopters. But yeah, I would say we had a much more <laughs> comfortable journey than, than Shackleton. And then on your boat, like how big was the crew? And like, I just obviously saw snippets, but like, it seemed like it was like a super diverse team. So like, there was like two completely different helicopters, a submarine, scientists. There was like a documentary team with BBC or something. Like oh, there was something from everywhere. That's it. It's an amazing, I think, what, I mean, I'm quite new to expeditions, and this was pretty much one of the biggest you could ever go on. And to see what, to see the, yeah, the range of scenarios that they had to work out. Um, so there was, all told, I think there were about 100 people on the ship, and that was about 40 dedicated Agalis crew, and they were pretty much all from Cape Town. Um, and then there was 60 expedition crew, and they were broken down into uh, scientists. Um, so the, the th um, while we were searching for the wreck, if there was um, if there was time, then the scientists could get onto the ice and, and do some um, sampling. Uh, so the scientists. Then there was the actual. Uh, we had two AUVs, um, and there was a dedicated subsea team, and they looked after the this AUV. So basically every time we launched or recovered the AUV. Um, so what, what exactly is the AUV? AUV, so yeah, is a autonomous underwater vehicle. So like a submarine. So it's like, yeah, so it's a mini, like some people call it a big drone. And some people call it a mini submarine. And it's about five meters long um, and, a, and a one and a half meters wide. 
And does someone sit in it? No, so it's remote. It's it's unmanned. So we were searching, we were searching for the wreck at a at a depth of three kilometers. So you know the sub would come up every now and again, and one of the lights would have imploded from the pressure. And so there were things like that. It was also attached to the ship by a 20-kilometer fiber optic cable. Oh, wow. And this was actually really new. Um, so normally they would... So they had an expedition two years ago. They went, same, they went to look for Shackleton's ship, and they had an unmanned, untethered AUV, and they unfortunately lost it. Um, and this thing's about $8 million. And it just... I think the battery ran out or something and, and what happens when it, that happens is it just it, it automatically floats to the top but now because there's ice it didn't pop up <laughs> so like funny enough one of the things we were also looking for was this sub that um, <laughs> we thought might be in the area and so one of the things going back now that they were more prepared for was that they had this fiber optic cable which was tethered to the ship and also for the first time ever they were getting real-time data so normally you would send the sub down, wait for it to do its thing for six hours, bring it back to the surface, and then you could check to see whether it found anything. Now they could see straight away. Like, so that was, that was very cool. Um, and except when the fiber optic cable broke, and then we had to manually spool nine kilometers of cable onto the winch, which happened to be one of my jobs. Um, <laughs> So one of the things that, that happened last time around two years ago was that they didn't actually make it to this, the wreck site because the ice was too thick. And so they kept getting stuck and eventually they just ran out of time and had to turn around. So this time they were like, okay, if we can't make it through the ice. And the, and the fascinating thing is that no one knew what the ice was going to be like until we got there, that, that there is no data for this area. Like we were, we were one of the... I think the fifth ship in history to go there. So no one knew what conditions were going to be like um, until we actually got there. And la yeah, last, so this time around, they were like, okay, great. If we can't make it this time, we're going to set up an ice camp on the actual ice and we'll fly everything over there. So they had a, a chopper specifically for lifting heavy things. And that was this crazy um, one-man helicopter, super thin, but just almost like a flying crane. Uh, and could lift two tons at a time. And then we had a normal um, Bell helicopter, which um, could carry everyone. I was part of the team which was going to set up camps on the ice. Um, and I think the, I guess, yeah, the interesting thing for me was I realized that th there were a lot of people on board with a lot more polar experience, but very little experience of actually living on the ice. So the day-to-day -day of living in a tent. And so they would often go to Antarctica or the Arctic by ship, but they lived on the ship, they didn't live on the ice. Um, so that was, um, yeah, so that, that was kind of part, that was my team. Um, and ultimately we didn't have to. Um, so we arrived in the, in the area and the ice was really thin. So the, the Agalas cruised through really easily and it just made life a lot easier. I mean, we could work directly off the ship and that's, that's why we found it. Like, otherwise, we just would have run out of time again. It's one of the most famous stories of survival of all time, the tale of Ernest Shackleton and the crew of the Endurance, which sank 107 years ago near Antarctica. 
Well, in what's being described as the Super Bowl for history buffs, the endurance has been found and it's intact. You guys, we found the endurance. We did it. We did it. We found it. And, um, the moment, like now you're getting live data. So obviously the news happens immediately. Like what happened on the boat? So yeah, there's, the way it works is it's, it, the submarine uses, um, it's called a side sonar scanner. So it scans on each side of, it, of the sub up to about 700 meters. And the way the Antarctica seabed is, it's super flat, nothing's there. It's just, so if there is anything, it, it's picked up really quickly on, on the scanner. So there were lots of little like false alarms. And, and things like that. And, and every now and again, you hear the radios going around the ship. And Menson, uh, he was our marine archaeologist and, and this guy that had been looking for the wreck. He would get called down to the, to the, to the, um, to what they called the container where they were watching the screens. And then you know, sort of everyone's on tenterhooks waiting. Is this, was, is this, is it not? Um, but it was almost like more, I mean, there was cheers. It was more relief. Like, it was just like, like the we were... The pressure was gone. Yeah, the pressure's gone and we, and we were right. Like, because there was talk coming back from outside that maybe we were looking in the wrong spot. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of, like, external pressure as well. And, and so, yeah, that relief, you could just almost feel the entire shift, the entire ship feel lighter, <laughs> just floated a bit better on the water. And um, so was there, was there ever a stage that, that the crew and that felt hopeless or like, like this is like, we're just not winning? So the initial search period was 10 days. And before we left, we had a briefing and they were like, look, if we don't find it in 10 days, we have an option to extend that, that, that time window for another 10 days. Bearing in mind that it's costing huge amounts of money every day. And um, those first 10 days, we didn't find anything. And, and so they were like, okay, we, we're going to activate the 10 day window. And, uh, and then with three days to go, we hadn't found anything. And you could see, I wouldn't say like frustration, but yeah, the pressure was building. And, and what I learned was they were, they were equating what we were doing to landing on the moon. Like that was the complexity of the operation in terms of sending the submarine down to that depth, looking for something and bringing it back. And so there were always little things going wrong. Um, so sometimes the software glitched or the cable broke or, you know, lights imploded. And, and often we would lose hours or even a day trying to sort something out. And the time, you just know this clock is ticking. But the guys were so experienced. And this subsea team, they, they've worked around the world in the same team, they were so close knit and they were, they were so calm and so professional. Like they never got frustrated with each other and they never, they were just like, it is what it is. We just have to like do these steps. And look, if we don't find it, that's, that's we've done, literally done the best we, we, we can. And they worked so hard, it was incredible. So it's 24, you know, it's nonstop from the day we started searching 
Well, there's no dark, so... Yeah, and that was the thing, yeah, exactly. And you, um, so it's a shift, you know, everyone works in shifts, and you just go, and you go until that window closes and you have to turn around and, and go home. So, and I think about three days ago, you could see the pressure and people, and the our expedition leader and our, um, and our marine archaeologist, he's been looking for this wreck for 10 years. Um, so, and it was... There was a sense of, well, I don't know if we're going to come back, you know. So if we don't find it, like that was it. Um, so, yeah, it was, I think, I feel like, when, I'm trying to remember what I felt like. And I think, uh, I, yeah, like I think if I'm honest with myself, I was like, I don't think we're going to find it now. Like, But we were always in the search area and we were just methodically working through that grid. So... So where, where to from here for you? Like more, more expeditions like this? Expedition-wise, yeah, I, I don't know. I've, I've got a bikepacking race, which I have always wanted to do um, across Europe in July. Um, so that's going to be 4,000 k's um, from Belgium to Bulgaria. And you have to find your own way and look after yourself and just... Basically, the yeah, start riding and the clock stops when 4,000 k's later when you finish. Uh, if you do finish in 4,000 k's, <laughs> yeah. So, and that's it. That's all we got time for today. I hope you're all feeling as energized and excited as I am after listening to Grant's wild adventures and learning so much about Shackleton's story. If you got a little bit of time, do yourself a favor and head over to Grant Clark's social media and check out all the amazing pictures and stories from his expedition into Antarctica. And for our cyclist friends out there, go take a look at Grant's new challenge, Cape Town Cannon Challenge. It looks pretty cool. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends and invite them to join us on this wild adventure. Until next time, keep wild and keep wild. Keep wild.